Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and it's been a while since um, we've had a new episode of this podcast. I've I've sort of been on hiatus, tending to my life and to other parts of my career and work. Um, but I was saying to our guest today, who is Elisa Gonzalez, about whom I'll say more in just a moment. I was saying to her before we started recording how much I've been missing having these conversations. Um, and so I'm I'm glad to get back into it today. And um, and we have a whole bunch of episodes in the works and that we'll start rolling out um, very shortly. Um, this particular episode and a couple others, I think, that will come out soon are a bit different from the the past practice of the podcast. You know, in the usual order of things, I invite a guest on, someone I know that I want to talk to, and then I let them choose whatever poem they want. And, um, and that's what we talk about in a kind of one-off way. Though inevitably connections start forming between the episodes, that's been interesting. But but yeah, that's been the that's been the procedure that we followed. Well, um, this is different in part because you know there was news in the poetry world, and it felt like big news um, recently and sad news. Um, um, the the poet Louise Glick, um, who you know I think by any kind of accounting is one of the major figures in American poetry, in um, Anglophone poetry, in world poetry um, of the last several decades, um, very sadly passed away. Um, And um, that news came as a big blow um, to uh, many of the people, um, well, to the poetry world, um, to many of my friends. who felt in various ways very close to um, Louise um, came as a great blow to them. And uh, the thought occurred to me that, you know, one thing that we could do here with the podcast that might add to the already kind of um, beautiful flowering of reminiscences, uh, reminiscences, uh, memories, um, essays that people have been writing, um, and, um, sort of publicly grieving Louise's passing, sharing their accounts of the person they knew and the poet they knew. One thing we could add to that maybe is an opportunity using the format of the podcast to single out a few poems of hers um, in a few episodes that that I'll be doing, this this being the first, um, and sit with the poem for the hour. And I think inevitably um, a conversation about a single poem, particularly with um, scholars and critics, writers, poets who uh, knew Louise personally, a conversation about any poem will lead to other kinds of talk, to talk about her life and about relationships and about... Um, the poetry business, maybe even, and the way um, lives intersect with each other and with the culture. But I thought it would be nice to have individual poems as the kind of um, touchstone that we kept uh, returning to. So um, today is the first of those conversations. I, um, I'm i still um, 
trying to finalize some details about who else I will be talking to, but there will be other, there will be a couple, at least one or two other episodes on Louise that will come out shortly. Um, I did um, do the thing that I normally do, which is to invite the guest to choose the poem. And um, Elisa has chosen the poem, A Village Life. Um, so the title poem from the, the book, A Village Life. Uh, for us to talk about today, we will get to hear Louise Glick reading it in, on recording in a moment. Um, but first, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest. Um, Elisa Gonzalez is a poet, an essayist, and a fiction writer. That's the newest of her um, identities to me, um, but I'm very excited about it. Her first book, which is a book of poems called Grand Tour, was just published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux this year in 2023, I think just a month ago, maybe. Um, and I thought that I could say things about this book, but then the thought, a better thought occurred to me, which was to quote Louise Glick on Elisa Gonzalez. Um, Louise, as we will talk about, was one of Elisa's uh, mentors, and she um has written these words that appear on the back of Grand Tour. So this is Louise Glick on our guest today. Quote, a mesmerizing book, deeply original, one of the most profound reading experiences I've had in years. There is in Elisa Gonzalez's nature something volcanic, a sense of fire originating at a very great depth. So when it breaks the surface, it breaks blazing. Here are wild elegies to lost selves, here, too, poems of eerie delicacy and strangeness, radiating a kind of desperate sadness. But I love best the long, incautious poems. Here, one feels most urgently her extraordinary force, her dignity, her savage hunger, her sweetness. These poems make me feel as if poems have never before been written. Well, um, that is... An extraordinary thing, I think, um, to have said about one's work. So I hope I haven't embarrassed Elisa too much. Let me say also that her um, debut novel, The Awakenings, and her nonfiction book, Strangers on Earth, are also going to come out with FSG. You can find Elisa's essays and poems in such place and stories in such places as Paris Review, The New York Times Magazine, and The New Yorker. Um, and, um, Elise is someone who I'm very, uh, grateful to count as a friend of mine. And I'm very happy, um, to have her in conversation with us all today, though I'm of course, uh, quite sad that the occasion that, um, brings us together today is such, um, a desperately sad one. Um, Elisa, how are you feeling today? How's it going? Um, well, it, <laughs> um, I'm doing well. It is a sad occasion, um, but I am glad to be talking about this poem and about Louise and her poetry with you. Um, I think that uh, finding or returning to the poems has been one thing that I've been doing a lot of since um, Louise's death, and uh, it is both um, sad and comforting at the same time. 
Good. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I've been doing it too. I feel as though, um, and I should say at the outset that um, uh, Louise um, Glick is someone that I've been in the same room as a couple of times at poetry readings. I've heard her, I heard her read. Um, she was not someone I ever met and I, I regret that deeply. Um, but, um, I'm really happy, um, to have you here with us today. Um, and I wonder, um, just before we get to the poem, Elisa, if you'd be willing to share, um, a little bit of memory for us about how it was that you first met Louise Glick, um, maybe what it was like a little bit to be her student, um, and some view perhaps even of the shape that that relationship took over the years, you know, since, since you were her student. Yeah. Um, I first met Louise over the phone. Um, and it was an inauspicious meeting. I definitely would not have thought that she would go on to be one of the most important people in my life for many years. Um, I was 18 and had been admitted to Yale and um, had submitted some poems with my application. And uh, Yale had called Louise. I mean, th all of this happened without my knowing, um, but they had sent her the poems um, and asked her to call me and uh, talk to me about Yale. Um, and so I had a, I was at a gas station in Ohio and I uh, picked up an unknown. It's a very poetic place, right? Very poetic. Uh, yeah. Lancaster is truly one of the most depressing towns. Sorry to Lancaster. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it was, uh, I was actually with my boyfriend at the time and uh, picked up the phone and heard her kind of uh, spidery rasp saying, uh, you know, asking if, um, if it was me and saying Louise Glick and I uh, locked him out of the car to like <laughs> to have the conversation. But it was so I was so terribly awkward and star. So you're sitting in the car. This is on your cell phone. Or I was yeah, on my cell yeah. phone. I was yeah. sitting in the car. Um, we had this painfully stilted conversation that both of us left thinking, oh, well, that was a terrible failure. Um, and, but I still applied, I did go to Yale. I still applied to be in her workshop in my first semester of freshman year, but I desperately hoped that she would have forgotten who I was by that yeah. point. Um, but she had not. And later <laughs> on, um, she told me like, I thought that that was a terrible, like, I thought you hated me. I thought you were never going to come to Yale. I never thought right. I would talk to you again. And I, um, I wonder what I it was in, in that you were feeling that produced that affect that she received in that way. I mean, there must, I mean, beyond just awkwardness or embarrassment, I mean, you were 18, let's be fair, you know, and this famous <laughs> poet is calling you, you know what I mean yeah. though? Like, right. No, I, I well, wonder if there was some kind of resistance or I don't know. I don't know. I, well, I actually think that both Louise and I, I like we're not in many ways very similar at all in terms of personality, but I think that when we were feeling shy or uncomfortable could come off as kind of aloof or like I see. um almost yeah. disdainful perhaps rather than it like the the self-consciousness gets turned toward a like rejection of the other person. 
this I have only thought about much later, but yeah. I, Louise and I had discussed this, you know, and it is part, was part of the kind of lore of how we knew each other, um, within, you know, between us, but, uh, I saw her, I last saw her at the end of August in, um, in Vermont. And I, for some reason we were talking about this again, and she said, I always, I've always pictured this as um, you and, um, and that like it, there being some risk of you being like left or under threat that it was your boyfriend's car and like he was mad at you. And, you know, uh -huh. there was this and I was like, no, I was driving like it was there was no risk to me. I mean, yeah. it, he was annoyed, but it was it was just she had made the situation more dramatic than it was and and also and i and kind of a better story that there was like this other like interpersonal problem that was also happening um that maybe had right. bigger consequences in my life and that seemed uh to me very emblematic of her kind of imagination where she she had taken a story and then she had put another story in there to complicate it and to make it deeper um to dramatize it to yes. to sort of create characters that would externalize internal psychological states maybe or, <laughs> or feelings yeah. yeah and and especially I mean, about it's something we see happening in her poems i guess is what I'm yeah noticing. absolutely yeah. and i do think she had a very um dramatic in that sense of theatrical or like staged right. quality um right. almost like a fictional or an, um, perhaps a novelistic imagination that there are characters and there are a lot of times they're doing things in the poems but um that was funny and you know i as her student, I think many people have talked about what it's like to be in workshop with her. And I truly did find it to be, um, well, at first, like, absolutely terrifying. Um, but in a very invigorating way, I have never known someone to like, care more about a poem, which I think is why sometimes people find her harsh, right. I mean, including me, but it, it's, but it's the everything was so much in service of the poem. But I remember she would often solicit uh, comments, but she wouldn't, she would withhold her own kind of judgment until basically the end of the discussion. And oh. um, I remember the first time that she kind of delivered this oration um, that seemed to be, I mean, clearly she had thought about whatever it was, um, but it really was like, a kind of the way I remember it was a sort of magnificent speech about the poem mm. and kind of about poetry. And I thought, you know, this is the most brilliant person that yeah. I've ever seen. How does anyone's mind work like this? Um, and then I think from then on, I was like, I will have to figure out how to learn from you. Um, and, even and, if it's painful for my ego. <laughs> well, oh, so you've anticipated my question with that last remark i mean that kind of attention must be a really kind of wondrous thing to behold and easier when it's someone else's poem she's talking about and when it's your poem it feels <laughs> oh yeah um, you feel exposed or seen uh, through or yeah her seeing or, was was very mm -hmm. intense i felt that she um, in, in many ways. Um, I mean, I did, I did cry the first time that I got oh. her comments back on a poem. I did, yeah. 
partly because it was very it was a bad poem and she was mm-hmm. just she was just kind of like there's no um there's no salvaging <laughs> um she she literally wrote hopelessly conventional on it and right. i just i was like completely mm. devastated um and that's and, and like she clearly she liked you a whole lot even from the beginning or i don't think she would have i'm got I, gone I, to the to the length she did but what what's emerging is like she was sort of um she liked you enough to tell you the truth or something or yeah, she yeah. loved poetry enough to not be able to lie about it I, I think both of those things are true. Um, and, you know, one thing that I have thought that I will miss greatly is that um, I have many friends who are poets um, and I trust their voices, but she is certainly perhaps the person uh, that I just felt I didn't necessarily, especially as I got older and became more confident and um, uh, in my own poetry, um, I could disagree with her, but I knew that she would always tell me what she thought. And that's sometimes that, and perhaps quite often that would be fairly um, or could be pretty devastating um, to the poem. If my, my sort of, ability to bear the harsh judgments <laughs> you know increased over the years right. um but uh that feels like a real absence there um mm. and i had uh i looked recently you know as you because when someone dies often you go through the detritus looking for remnants of them as you know um and uh I found um, a comment that she wrote to me on a poem from that first semester. And it was a poem that she really liked, um, that she had, (laughs) it was embarrassing, but she, it was like the, I think of it as the first real poem I ever wrote. It was the first poem that ever fell out of my control while I was writing it. And it was one that she really liked and like told everyone in the class, you know, that she thought it was marvelous. And, um, and, you know, that was great, but also pretty embarrassing. But when I looked at the, uh, the comments, it was, they were still extremely critical. And I had, they were, I mean, there was a, there were many expressions of admiration and overall it was admiring, but at one point she was like, not on the whole a disaster, as my friend says, but, you know, it has these uh-huh. problems of lineation and, like, I think your instinct here is right, but it needs to go this way yeah. or whatever. And I was like, this is a, you know, this is a kind of crazy level of dedication to be giving to an 18-year-old's poem. Like, right. that's just, you know, I, it's it's yeah. the level of dedication that I feel she gave to her own work, too. But Right. Um, but it, but then you see it. She had so many students, and she was doing this for all of these things. Her her just her commitment to poetry was yeah. extraordinary. I mean, it's 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 I guess an overused word these days, but it, it it's a real kind of um, generosity that you're describing in in her attention and um. And um, it seems both 
to be born of a thoroughly authentic kind of feeling of attachment to the art, but also to the people, you know, who were entering into her um, care and classroom. And um, it's, it's a really beautiful um, kind of story you're telling about what it was like to be in that classroom um, and to be her student, not just in the classroom, but out of it as well. And then over the years, Elisa, you and she remained in touch. Is that right? And would see each other yeah. sometimes. And um, yeah, and, we... and, and, and I guess over that span, a, a pretty major event happened. I mean, more than one, I'm sure, but one that was highly public event happened in her life, which is she won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> um, what I don't know, just briefly, maybe what was it like? Not I'm not asking for you know, to dish about that particular event, but just what was it like having graduated from college and, you know, moving on into your own adult life to maintain a friendship with a kind of former teacher? And did it feel like things were changing? Like you, you were, or did it feel like you were forever her student or how, how did, how did that sort of sit with you? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question because I think that sort of like, you know, I was thinking about the strangeness of the word mentor, yeah. you know, and, and where it comes from. It's so like martial and, um, uh, and, and there's something about that, that I don't know if we, um, have d- kind of adequately like scoped out what it means to lose someone who was your teacher and your friend and like demi-parental at some times and other times very much not. Um, I think Louise's, the intensity of her seeing me and her, um, what I, I always felt as like great kindness to me in so many areas of my life, like the generosity that you're talking about with my work and but other things interpersonally, um, I felt that she was a person that I could always uh, turn to. Um, but certainly, I had to become less intimidated by her over time. Right. And like, I it took I think some years for us to develop what I thought of as kind of a an actual friendship, where I would say, "Oh, right. we are we are friends." I mean, she. She would always ask me when I went to see her um, to bring poems, you know, if I had them. So we would go through the ritual that I had been doing for so many years, you know, by the last by the last time I did that, um, where I would pass printed pieces of paper across the table to her and she would read them and I would try not to look at her face while she <laughs> read them. And then we, she didn't know, write she, hopelessly conventional on any of them. Uh, no, but you know, she she would make faces and cross yeah. out lots of things and all sorts of, I, I never got that again, but yeah. you know, I got a lot <laughs> of other, uh, well, it's interesting that she, you know, it's even in that blurb I read, it's the incautious Elisa that she <laughs> most admired. Um, yes. Did, would she ever share her work in progress with you or new things no. with you before they were published? No. Not with, or I mean, sometimes before they were, but not like drafts. Not drafts, right. Um, yeah. She would talk about her creative. I think she, um, she was, in my experience of her pretty protective about work until she felt that 
like that there there were things that could be like threatened or that things necessarily needed time in order to um, develop. And um, it's interesting because it's it's there already in a way in the classroom version of her you're giving us, which is the sort of withholding of her own perspective until she's ready to present it as this kind of fully formed thing. You know? Yeah, and, and you know, she also she did have these periods where she wasn't writing, you know, and she's written about that and talked about the silences quite a bit. And I had my own silences for part of the time that I, you know, knew her and Mm -hmm. we would talk about that. But um, I think that made, or my sense was that that made the process of creation for her feel pretty fraught and therefore something that really needed to be, um, yeah, protected while it was happening, yeah. which involved some retreat from the world, perhaps. Um, sure, that makes a lot of sense. I know Fraught that she did show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know she did show things to other people, but it, it. I felt that sometimes I could, if I knew she was writing, I could also kind of see some of the things she was thinking about and what she was telling me. Not that it was always like the same advice, but she was working on a village life when I became her student, yeah. and. Um, I remember her counseling me to write longer lines, to write longer poems, Uh to, um, to risk being prosaic, to like not prize to the kind of lyric perfection of a line. And all of that is stuff that she was herself working through, I think, as she was writing A Village Life. Um, when, and when the book came out, I was like, oh, like, I, <laughs> you know, yeah. I do see Why didn't she just tell me to do this? Yeah. <laughs> and when she started writing prose poems, she told me yeah. to start writing prose poems. And I, oh, that's I would fascinating. say, yeah, I am. Um, so I don't, I, I mean, I do think that I don't want to make it sound like her advice was like, so like just taking mm-hmm. what she was thinking about and applying it to her students. I don't think she was no. doing that at all. But I just, I think when there are certain things on your mind or when you're working stuff out, those those are coming out in other ways. And Listen, t- teachers yeah. are people too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you would know. <laughs> so. oh, I guess so. Stars, they're just like us. Um, all right, Elisa, this, is, this has been um, a really lovely conversation about the woman and teacher and friend whom you knew. Um, I think it's probably high time that we listen to the poem. Um, so... Um, uh, we have this recording um, in, in the recording, um, um, which I hope will come out at a respectable volume, but, you know, just if you need to, um, dear listener, you'll hear her say a couple of prefatory things about the poem and then read the poem. Um, so we will listen to the recording. You should um, know that there is, as ever, a link in the episode notes that will take you to a text of the poem. So if you'd like to read along as you listen, please do. But um, Without further ado, here is Louise Click reading A Village Life. And this is the title poem of that book, which was also the first poem written. Um, And it was the first poem I had written in a very, very, very long time. And all poems have their triggers especially if you have been long silent. I, I was reading a book by John Berger, the novelist, and 
I came on the word escarpment, and I remembered, I used to use that word. I used to know what it applied to. And I looked it up, and I read about it, and I thought, that's my book. As I, I, can, I can write a book about that word. And that was my experience, that I wrote a book about that word. So this is called A Village Life. And the speaker here is, in fact, a speaker who's appeared before. The mountain figures in many of these poems. And the neighbor is also in several. A Village Life. The death and uncertainty that await me as they await all men. The shadows evaluating me because it can take time to destroy a human being. The element of suspense needs to be preserved. On Sundays, I walk my neighbor's dog so she can go to church to pray for her sick mother. The dog waits for me in the doorway. Summer and winter, we walk the same road, early morning at the base of the escarpment. Sometimes the dog gets away from me. For a moment or two, I can't see him behind some trees. He's very proud of this, this trick he brings out occasionally and gives up again as a favor to me. Afterward, I go back to my house to gather firewood. I keep in my mind images from each walk. Menarda growing by the roadside. In early spring, the dog chasing the little gray mice. So for a while, it seems possible not to think of the hold of the body weakening, the ratio of the body to the void, shifting, and the prayers becoming prayers for the dead. Midday, the church bells finished. Light in excess, still fog blankets the meadow so you can't see the mountain in the distance covered with snow and ice. When it appears again, my neighbor thinks her prayers are answered. So much light, she can't control her happiness. It has to burst out in language. Hello, she yells, as though that is her best translation. She believes in the virgin the way I believe in the mountain, though in one case the fog never lifts. But each person stores his hope in a different place. I make my soup. I pour my glass of wine. I'm tense like a child approaching adolescence. Soon it will be decided for certain what you are. One thing, a boy or girl. Not both any longer. And the child thinks, I want to have a say in what happens. But the child has no say whatsoever. When I was a child, 
I did not foresee this. Later, the sun sets, the shadows gather, rustling the low bushes like animals just awake for the night. Inside, there's only firelight. It fades slowly. Now only the heaviest woods still flickering across the shelves of instruments. I hear music coming from them sometimes, even locked in their cases. When I was a bird, I believed I would be a man. That's the flute. And the horn answers, when I was a man, I cried out to be a bird. Then the music vanishes, and the secret it confides in me vanishes also. In the window, the moon is hanging over the earth, meaningless but full of messages. It's dead. It's always been dead, but it pretends to be something else, burning like a star, and convincingly so that you feel sometimes it could actually make something grow on earth. If there's an image of the soul, I think that's what it is. I move through the dark as though it were natural to me, as though I were already a factor in it. Tranquil and still, the day dawns. On market day, I go to the market with my lettuces. Uh, so that's Louise Glick reading A Village Life. Um, Elisa, um, well, obviously we will get to all kinds of moments in the poem, particular lines and images and movements that stand out to you and that you want to talk about. But um, I wonder if you might just share with us as a place to start what you notice in her voice and what it's um, what it's like to listen to Louise Glick read um, her poetry, what it was like for you just now to listen to her voice in uh, performance of this poem. Yeah, um, it's really, you know, <laughs> recording and amazing technology. It's like hearing her talk. Again, um, she was, it's just very funny. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can hear her uh, mysticism in that I, I felt like she was such a skeptic and such a mystic um, huh. in that little story about the word escarpment. Um, <laughs> she was, say, say more about that mysticism and skepticism in that in that well, particular story. It's like you know coming across this word that's like honestly a pretty ugly word, and yeah, for then sure. yeah. thinking. Um, and then being fixed on it and then going to look like there is like bibliomantically at the dictionary and then thinking yeah. my book is in that and that's that unlocks everything. And that's I, I feel that that sort of bizarre mystic journey is one that Louise. Um, I mean, I think it is in the right. poems, but it is also in, you know, her yeah. kind of life. But she's also, you know, just could be so coolly uh rational and you know was not um yeah 
necessarily, I think someone, uh, you know, she's dry and ironic too. And right. I, you can also hear that in the poem and you can hear that in her delivery. I do think that, um, I'm not sure she thought she was a good reader of poems. I know that she didn't uh -huh. really like doing it. Um, but I have always thought that she reads her own poems well in the sense that there's a kind of, um, often humor that I think can be missed on the page if you're not like attending to it already. Right. Um, or if and, that kind of thing isn't funny to you. Yeah. You know, humor it, is so it, personalized, right? Um, yeah. But in her voice, I think you can, you can hear the sort of um, the lines that are kind of landing like with more of a wry wink perhaps sure. as well as well as the ones that are delivered much more seriously and confidently you know if there's an image of the soul i think that's what it is it's it's yeah. crazy to me to imagine writing that line and it's it's funny to hear it also delivered so boldly which is that she yeah. was also very bold there yeah um, and, and her poetry more generally has these lines in it, these sort of frequently quoted lines that are often abstracted from the poems, but that sound like the pronouncements that you might expect the Nobel Prize winning poet to have had at the end of my suffering, you know, et cetera, you know, that, those kinds of moments, right? Yeah. Um, um, but at the same time, I do think... I'm not saying she what she couldn't make the grand statements, but I do always think like in context there's um there's often like some sort of mitigating or qualifying factor to that grandiosity like at the end of my suffering there was a door right. um it is also like quite literally about a flower in like right. a sort of <laughs> like the image yeah. is working on multiple levels there yeah. as it emerges from the earth and you know here i i do think um one thing that's very beautiful about this particular one is the hypothetical of if there's an if, image of the right. soul i think that's what it, it like there's a lot of uncertainty built into something that is at the same time a wildly bold pronouncement and so, one of so those. that yeah so that's part of the skepticism you were hearing when you yes. say skepticism and mysticism right well and of and course the, think, the, yeah go on Please. Oh, no. And I think um, one of the reasons that I love this poem is how it, yeah. it has this kind of almost staggering movement. I mean, it's 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 quite calm, I think, but the way that it moves back and forth between these pretty mundane scenes and then these and then this hovering of, you know, the death and uncertainty that await me as they await right. all men. So um or but I mean, even... the fact that 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 those lines, the opening lines of the poem, are in such close proximity with lines like "On Sundays I walk my neighbor's dog so she can go to church to pray for her sick mother," which, taken out of the context of this poem, and take away the line break or something, which of course you can't do, but if you could, nobody would recognize those lines as poetry at all, right? Yeah, and um, and there's also the part, uh, the fact that. Um, the if you are if you are looking at the poem you can see that first stanza the death and uncertainty that await me as they await all men the shadows evaluating me etc it breaks off in a dash and then it goes to the line that 
the two lines you're talking about on Sundays, I walk my neighbor's dog. So there's even that sort of breaking in of the kind of prosaic that I think is like, I mean, it not only repeatedly happens in the poem Mm -hmm. that something kind of breaks with a dash or there's an almost an incomplete thought or story, but it feels um, almost like a journal to me when I like look at it on the page that there's something about the alternation of thought and fancy and the serious and then also the recording of the images from the walk and the the sense that both that we're getting something that's very much anchored in little moments and also it seems like a great quantity of time is passing because we have the neighbor's sick mother who um you know this these walks are having are happening repeatedly over the right, course of seasons right there's a kind of habitual kind of temporality to this it's like the you know, like the famous first line of Proust or something, longtemps, you know, <laughs> it's like for, you know, the on Sundays suggests yeah, it's different from this Sunday I walked or, you know, um, that's right. That's interesting. I want to go back to a word you used um, earlier because I thought it was such an interesting one. And it, and it suddenly occurred to me that I had never thought of how different tonally the two senses of the same word are when you said it has the poem has it appeals to you because it has a kind of how did you put it staggered or staggering oh but, yeah but, but i meant <laughs> yeah well you know yeah. so you you already because you know me and and you get it are anticipating the point that i'm making but let me just make it for the audience which is like sorry Make no, no. Point. I mean, it's like we can say like, oh, it, that was staggering. What you, we mean by that is that it was like, overwhelming and that it was um, it sort of has knocked us back onto um, our, our butts or whatever. Right. Like it's knocked us out. Um, but you were referring to a more kind of um, like its structure is staggered in some sense right or or yes. were you saying both things or i don't know uh, well i i was thinking of the second one yeah. but it, it i yeah. do think this poem is staggering in in both yeah. senses um and also i i think there's a kind of a part of what i meant is it is i, I had the image of like a staggering walk like someone who's right. walking kind of unevenly because i think with the movement and the none of these stanzas it like it's not regularized in terms of stanza length um or most of the lines are fairly long like almost filling the page none of them are going beyond that and needing to be indented and there are some shorter lines too but it it has a kind of unevenness in texture that i i find very interesting and i think is definitely a you know, represents a departure from at least the sort of classic Louise Glick of some of the earlier books. Um, Which would have been um, a, a shorter line and a more uniform kind of line. Is yeah, that right? I think that's yeah. the standard thing. And also a shorter yeah. poem. I mean, this poem yeah. is, you know, two and a half pages in my right. book, and it yeah. has m- many movements. And I think it is it is risking both being prosaic you know in the sense of just literally like possibly i i mean i think some reviewers did Mm -hmm. say this you know where like where is the poetry or something but also um it it risks losing the reader with the with these movements and with that sense that i think you could have that 
you don't quite know where it's going or what right. it is trying to tell you. And there is this kind of following along that has to happen. But because um, it's it's sort of um, stochastic. I mean, quite literally, it's like the, the random walk kind of yes. thing, right? Where each step sort of narrows, uh, but as though like sort of haphazardly or in a kind of highly contingent way, the, 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 the possibilities that are then possible and you know, way leads on to way as Frost put it in that, in that famous poem. Um, yeah. But I like also, you know, here there's, it's, there's walking, but there's walking with the dog and the, and the dog isn't even her dog. And the dog sometimes gets, a, sorry, I shouldn't say her, I should say his, the speakers or the speakers, right? Yeah. I want to come back to that actually, that distinction in a moment, but the dog waits for me in the doorway. Sometimes the dog gets away from me. So there's a sense of being that's both sort of represented in the poem, but if I'm hearing you right, Elisa, um, also fair is a description of the poem that it feels sort of like, sort of not totally in control of its own procedure or motion, and there's something kind of random or out of control about it. Yeah, and I mean that th- I I like your turning to the dog there because it there's a sort of push and pull that is happening I think between what I maybe we could say were the two kind of major elements of the poem between the meditation on death and the soul and what happens, you know, the void that awaits us and the um, everyday details of this life that is happening in the village. And that, you know, that's, we, I I think we sort of, I don't want to skip ahead too much, but I think we sort of end with both of those together. Right. Both of which together? Um, both of the two aspects of the poem coming together. Mm. I move through the dark yeah. as though it were natural to me, as though I were already a factor in it. Right. So, you know, projecting yeah. into a death that hasn't happened. Right. But then tranquil and still the day dawns on market day. I go to the market right. with my lettuces. Yeah. And, there's, and that's all one stanza. So there is a kind of unification there. I like um, that. So these two strands that, can feel where the distance between them can feel pretty wide are maybe sort of making their way towards each other. And as the poem goes on. Um, So, so I have a question that is um, kind of a global observation about the poem, which is that, and I don't know, I mean, I don't, I don't know Louise Glick's work nearly as well as you do. um, But it strikes me that the thing I'm about to say is the kind of thing one could say different as this poem might be in certain other formal ways about a great many of her poems that the first person pronoun is all over it, right? There's a, there, there are the word I appears again and again um, in this poem. Does it feel fair to say that? I mean, obviously she's not alone in this. This is a sort of constituent element of what we have come to think of as lyric poetry and the way it operates. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it's also become a kind of reflexive thing in talking about poetry, increasingly so for reasons that are, you know, you know, maybe interesting, but too much of a digression to get into here to say that the I is a speaker, that the, the, the poem has a speaker. We heard in the prefatory comments that she made before reading this poem that she herself used that language, right? That the poem speaker is, I forget exactly what she said about it. Maybe you could remind us, but so I guess I just wonder um, about how you 
um, both as a general matter, but then maybe more to the point, like in this poem, are observing the kind of force or effect of that repeated I that is also seems very much... So on the one hand, that would seem to suggest a kind of in sort of a that the that the sort of domain of the poem is the the sort of um, parameters of uh, the consciousness of the poet or something. Um, but then on the other hand, the the eye feels very much like a character in a setting that's um, not dramatic in the like oh wow so many dramatic things are happening there, but dramatic in the, as though it's a kind of setting. I don't know how else to put it in a, in the literary mm-hmm. sense. Um, and I even think about it with respect to her voice that like, you're not going to mistake. Louise Glick always sounds like Louise Glick when she reads her poems to me anyway. And yet the, the speakers whose position she's articulating change, you know, quite dramatically in many cases. So I'm asking you to sort of um, think about how that works for you here or what sort of version of that you see operating here. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think one of the things that's very interesting about her work is how often she, as a poet, chooses to occupy different persona and voices in across many books mm. that I think of as pretty distinct um and i mean sometimes like much more explicitly like mm. in averno or meadowlands um but in a village life and faithful and virtuous night for instance there and also wonder recipes for the collective we get um uh or at least faithful and virtuous night and a village life both have kind of repeated speakers who are not right. necessarily who are not mythic figures or flowers but are just kind of inventions that are taking that speak for right. across multiple poems um but yeah louise glick does always sound like louise glick in some sense and um i do think that um but i i i think that there is to me, it seems, at least in this poem, that there's an element of um, choosing voices that allow you to, that allow the poet, allow her kind of overarching mind and preoccupations to get closer to something than she could, speaking from perhaps right. more uh, stable lyric eye position or, uh-huh. or more directly about life, yeah. that I think the setting as you say, it, this does feel like fictional in this, in a, yeah. or maybe novelistic, perhaps one could say, um, in that the setting and the characters are operating like importantly in the poem. I mean, they're not yeah. this, there might be elements that are drawn from life, but I feel like part of the reason that there is a distinct other voice here is to allow different things to come to the surface yeah. perhaps yeah. um yeah and i think it's interesting that even within this um speaker who is not her but is also her um we also have 
the neighbor talking and right. the ventriloquism of the the imagined voices of the musical instruments who are yeah that that part is so strange to me and I love it so totally much. yeah um, yeah especially I, because the when it appears like when I was a bird I believed I would be a man and then line break that's the flute so you're totally right. unanchored at first it's like what is happening here yeah. um and I think those moments of confusion or destabilization are are productive in the poem i mean they're moving you forward and creating these also these glimmers of mystery maybe um totally i mean it sounds to me in a way like even that that's sort of inaugurated even in the title of the poem a village life which is um you know, a, a like a, a conventional and or idiomatic enough phrase, but when you think about it, it starts to look strange. Like we think of a life singular as a kind of individual thing. So, what would a village life be, right? Like yeah. it, it seems like the the kind of boundaries of the self have become somewhat porous at this point, and that confusion is potential confusion feels. Um, abetted in a way by the like substitutions that happen in the poem walking the stranger's dog you know or it's not strangers but neighbors sorry um and um and 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 for sure at those musical instrument moments which i agree um really strike me in this um poem too but to the extent elisa that we can sort of describe and imagine who the I is, who is the speaker of this poem, who is perhaps, you know, as coherent a character as any one of us is or something. Like, what is this I like? And what are some lines or moments in the, in the, maybe your first half of the poem or take us anywhere you like, um, that feel to you like important moments that we haven't touched on yet that help you to establish or have a sense of who this character is. And I'm just kind of in a way following your lead, your encouragement and thinking for the moment about this character as though the character were the speaker were a kind of fictional character, you know, in the, in the kind of novelistic sense. Yeah. I mean, I do think that it is a character, although I will say that probably some of the things I'm going to say are could be descriptions of Louise. I mean, this is but a that's person, fine. This yeah. is a character who's very preoccupied with death and that yeah. and who's very clearly has a lot of interiority. And despite participating, well, I don't think this is Louise, but, you know, is participating in the world, is, you know, has relationships with the neighbor and with the dog and with the, with the market and, you know, with the landscape and such, but does seem to um, has at least a kind of lonely mind, I think, huh. that there's some tension yeah. between the social participation and what's happening on the inside, which doesn't seem to be being expressed. Like the neighbor talks and says, 
hello, she yells as though that is <laughs> her best trick. funny to hear her um, ventriloquist or sort of speak that moment because you could almost feel her trying not to sound like herself. Yeah. <laughs> so, Do you know what I mean? A, yes. Yeah. I, and it doesn't uh, quite... It doesn't quite work, but um, yeah, but I you love know, it. And yeah. and then we and we also have someone, you know, when uh, who is it's I, the line "I'm tense like a child approaching adolescence." It it does feel like a very taut speaker to me, despite yeah. like the kind of lengthy lines and some of the yeah. more slack moments that we were talking about, where there's a more prosaic energy, and it's that. And that invocation of the child and, you know, being a child is interesting to me because the adolescence that's being summoned, I think, is mm -hmm. death. So it's like as someone who's aging mm -hmm. and then at the same time is or, you know, is being invoked anyway, um, I think. Or, um, Sorry, when you say the adolescence that's being summoned is death, am I understanding you right? I'm tense like a child approaching adolescence. Yeah, I so, read that present so, tense yeah, go on. Uh, tension as being partly the anticipation of the death that, it, you know, we the death and uncertainty that await me that appears at the beginning. So there's which, a kind which of... Is, which is like adolescence yeah. in the sense that... Oh, this is interesting. Okay. So I, it, I'm sort of connecting it back to right, just like you were to the to that first line, the death and uncertainty that await me, which is fascinating actually, as they await all men. Because part of what she's saying there is that there is like a there is a there is a a kind of certainty actually about the uncertainty that awaits, right? Mm -hmm. And it coincides. I like how it sort of coincides there, and actually a thing that I've been meaning to ask you about partly because the line length is so variable here and because, you know, Louise was, as you've disclosed to us, encouraging you to experiment with long lines and that kind of thing at the same time as she was writing this poem and book. Um, there's something about the line ending, which can feel like the certainty of death or something like that. Um, and yet the line ending, unless it's the last line of the poem, isn't the ending. Um, in a kind of complete sense, but sorry, I, I've lost, I've lost track of the point slightly. Let me come back to it. That, that within this, the sort of space of this poem, death is like adolescence in so far as death settles once and for all who you are, because you can't keep living past it. And adolescence in the view of this poem settles who you are not in this with the same kind of extremity but in a sense that is nonetheless real which is to say in the sense of this poem it settles whether you're a boy or a girl <laughs> you can't you can no longer be both the poem yeah. says right and there's also the the thing about the and the child thinks i want to have a say in what happens but the child has no say whatsoever which is Right. Again, like a, a kind of futile wish that you could have about death that you want. I mean, right. you want to have a say about. Right. Those, you know, so many. I mean, I guess you can kind of. But I also think that just to turn back that there's. Yeah, yeah, it's, please. it's interesting to me, death and uncertainty that await yeah. me. I mean, because I think that also, you know, that does tie to 
me to adolescence in the sense that you know it's coming. And if you remember being about to turn 13 or <laughs> feeling like there, there's a period where the transformation does feel incipient or has started to happen, but is also obviously not complete. Um, yep. And adolescence is a period of kind of continual transformation. So that with the uncertainty is, is an interesting way, I think, to think about death or like the void or to imagine it as a space mm -hmm. of um both finality and like uh potentially i i don't know and like endless change or at least there's so much that's not known about it um because you're going to be so radically transformed by it from this side of the threshold you it's utterly uncertain Whereas sort of retrospectively from the position of old age to think back to adolescence is to, that was the doorway was, through which you passed to become the person you now are or something, you know? Yeah. Right? And it does seem, yeah, I think so. And it does seem that there's, I mean, if we go back to the strange moment with the instruments, um, yeah. with, with their, the way that the instruments are talking, when I was a bird, I believed I would be a man. That's the flute and the horn answers. When I was a man, I cried out to be a bird. There's some sense of like what we are is not what we wanted to be, but also our wishes were wrong or mistaken in some sense that is being enacted there that I, I find yeah. really interesting. And the um and the transformations are happening in like um opposite directions and are confused and also i want to note just for people who aren't looking at the poem that at that place which is so the previous stanza ends uh i hear music coming from them sorry the um the shelves of instruments i hear music coming from them sometimes even locked in their cases and just as an aside i mean that felt to me like a, a kind of poignant description of some of the kind of paradoxically sort of withholding and expressive features that we've been noting that in Glick's as Glick's poetry more generally that in some sense like you get the sense that she can feel like a locked like a, a musical instrument that's locked in its case but also the music is escaping the locked case you know um, yeah but then, so then the stanza that follows it, when I was a bird, I believed I would be a man. That's the flute. So just to take that as, so that's not the whole stanza, but that's the first line and a half of it. Um, there, there, there's, there are no quotation marks, um, which um, helps to make it confusing. That's the flute, I guess we want to say is like no longer a quotation, but instead a kind of narrator's aside glossing mm -hmm. for you the thing you just heard <laughs> but 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 the lines are, are kind of describing this sort of these wishes as you put it and these wishes that are the wrong wishes maybe or in some sense um but for transformation and at the same time it's sort of at the level of our reading of the poem something like those transformations are underway right like there's a kind of confusion about who's speaking and in what capacity yeah. And then, um, and then do you, she's, or 
the speaker says more, mm-hmm. then the music vanishes and the secret it confides in me vanishes also, but it's also whatever that we think we've maybe heard the secret possibly, yeah. um, but the, which has been recorded on the page, but also maybe we haven't, maybe there was another thing that was being told, I think that isn't yeah. represented here. Um, and then you know, the next turn is, is to the moon and then toward that, yeah. line about the soul that we were talking about and yeah. the moon is hanging over the earth meaningless but full of messages which i i feel is a very important line in this poem where there's so much so many messages are being spoken or sent out i mean the and there's also that earlier um line uh as though that is her best translation. I feel like maybe there's also Hmm. some, these attempts uh, that various people have and the speaker has to try to translate some kind of elemental longing or like perception about the universe um, that still can't quite, it has to burst out in language as, you know, an earlier line says, but at the same time, like it's a secret that's vanishing um, as soon as it's spoken. Yeah, I want to I want to actually I'm glad you brought us back to that for a moment. And I realize we're sort of um skipping back and forth, but I think that's cool. That's that's what we <laughs> wanted. That's what we want somehow like the poem has wanted us to do that. I'm yeah, going to I'm just so. going to say that <laughs> because it's a comforting thing to believe. Um You can blame but, me, but I no, also No, think no, 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 no. Yeah, good. Good. Um <laughs> it's all of us. Um the the early moment, which was one moment that if I was list, if I was hearing it right, maybe even got a bit of a laugh in the room where she was reading it. Um, uh, she believes in the Virgin the way I believe in the Mountain, um, where there is this, um, you know, clear sort of juxtaposition, ironically being made between the neighbor and the speaker. Um, Lisa, is there is there something you'd want to say about what um, like the kind of upshot of that distinction is? Um, um, what <clears throat> what would it what do you think it means for the the speaker of this poem to believe in the mountain? Um, th- that's that's one version of the question, and and another, I guess, w- we never really paused. I mean, you said very interesting things about the way she described her kind of cathecting onto the word escarpment earlier. But but I wonder like, I don't know if, if we took that seriously, like what would it like? Why would like, let's for the moment credit that fiction. Why would she think this is the word I'm writing this book about? So I, I had to look it up encouraged by her to make sure I knew what it meant. I don't have the definition right in front of me, so I'm not going to, I'm not reading it out loud, but what an escarpment is, I think is like, um, um, a part of a landscape that, um, sort of marks like a steep, you know, like a cliff face or something that marks a kind of steep, not sudden not, um, sort of gradual and slow, but a kind of sudden transition in elevation between one part of the landscape and the other. So it's like a wall in a way that gets you say from a valley to a plateau. Um, I don't know. Is there something, you know, I don't know. So this is a question about believing in the mountain, but also about what sort of weird power, mystical power, the word escarpment might've had over Glick and why we should care about that. And then, 
I, I just I don't, I don't want to have left that behind before we turn our full attention to the ending of the poem, which surely we'll want to do. But so do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, it's. Um, it's funny because I think there is a kind of simplistic way in which like believing the mountain. I do think that this poem is interested in the material world, that there is mm-hmm. a sort of sense, like a hope that is, you know, being stored when she says in the soup, in the wine, in the lettuces, in the mountain, also mm-hmm. like all part of the kind of same thing, which is counter perhaps to the void. Um, but it's interesting to, to like, to to push on that i think a little more and think about what it means to believe in something and i i, I like and i think that the well we know what it means to like believe in the virgin right? yeah but then yeah. to have that applied in the same way to the mountain um or to relate that i mean you know one thing I was thinking about with escarpment is that it's not traversable perhaps by like normal like modes, like the steepness of an escarpment would mean that presumably you couldn't like walk up or down it. You might have to climb in some way or it would be dangerous to approach. And it, there's something about, you know, a mountain, which is sometimes obscured by fog in this poem Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that disappears, that you have to like maintain a belief in it, even when you can't see it. There are times when you can see it. And that is true of the world. So that that I do see is the likeness there. But it's also interesting, because I think the speaker um, in this poem is never on the mountain. I mean, the, the right. encounters with it are, are still, there's still remoteness and there's distance and a kind of gap there. So belief um, is a kind of like relation that we have to things that are in some sense inaccessible to us. Right? Yeah. And also that there's, um, that there, there's something that emerges from the believing through the inaccessibility that gives some hope that and that that i actually i i we also understand what it means to store hope in the virgin right or to believe in god um but it is slightly less clear to me what it what the mountain then gives is it the continued existence of the earth like the some just some sort of stability of it still being there or Mm -hmm. you know like what what about that engenders hope? Because I think often when you look at it is when people look at things like mountains, it's not necessarily particularly reassuring about your own humanity or your own place in the world. It can be like quite a, you can mm-hmm. experience the sublime, but you don't necessarily experience comfort. Um, right. So and the sublime uh, is terrifying. Right? Yeah. Or, and or the mountain will, it can disappear through the, fog but it also is going to continue after you um so it's 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 an odd it's an odd form of of hope i think yeah. um as it is an odd form of belief it, it sits so interestingly next to another line which you've referred to um but that is a line i really love because of its how sort of masterfully and with such a light touch it captures the kind of idiomatic resources of english but i make my soup i pour my glass of wine the 
um for me it's the the mise mm-hmm. in that 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 suggest what like that it's habitual also yeah she's all like that's why it's her soup because or the speaker soup because the speaker's always doing this right um and it and those details i don't know what's the tone of those of that line for you like how would you describe it is it grim or hopeful or sort of yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's a silly question. Uh, no, I don't. I I hear a kind of um, a like almost amusement in it. I think, yeah. That, like here yeah. I am doing the things I do to like my dumb little things. Yeah, yeah, your <laughs> right. dumb little things that everyone has. There's the, the like habit appears. Right. I think quite a lot in this poem, but um, yeah. But there's something about that that's almost like here are the things that I do to like comfort myself about right. like the fact that some fog never lifts, um, you know, the the void or whatever. Um, like the tension is still there, but here are these these things I'm doing, and I do love that. I think it the idioms of English specifically. The my is really important there. Yeah. I, this one time this Polish man was talking to me and he was like, you Americans or he meant English speakers. He was like, everything's yours, yours, yours. Like, why <laughs> can it just be the, you know, like, or a, yeah. or whatever. Um, yeah. like, why does it, why is it, why is the possession so important? Well, um, the line and, would be quite different if it were, I make some soup, I pour a glass of wine. Yeah. That's just a description of, a thing. Yeah. I think there is that kind of invocation of it. And it suggests to me, I mean, it is, it's a portrait of solitude i think in that line like it is it's like it's not those things are not going to be shared they are yeah my glass of wine literally singular right yeah right um and it feels i i just i i feel so much uh you know as we talked about there's a lot here that can feel quite um fictional but i just really can visualize this person alone in their house doing you know making their soup, making, pouring their glass of wine and sitting, um, you know, by the firelight and like thinking like it, it feels very evocative of a particular scene, but it's a, it's definitely, I feel a portrait of a person who's alone and feels alone. Um, but isn't necessarily, I mean, maybe tense, but it's, it's, it's not, I don't know, despite all the like morbid discussion in this poem, it doesn't Mm -hmm. mostly feel particularly like dark or charged, the charging moves in, which is, I I know we should turn to the end of the poem, but I did want to talk about something that I think is kind of related to that, which is her language of contingency. Um, There's, multiple cases here where she has as though and um and it's very that has been something that i've like thought about i mean i'm not sure i'll have great thoughts to share can you remind us of a couple of those moments yeah i've just i've loved them since i first read this poem um so i think uh I think that the first one is, um, hello, she yells as though, line break, that is her best translation. Um, And then toward the- A translation of happiness, right? Yes. Her best translation. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, And then uh, at the end, I, I move through the dark as though it were natural to me, as though I were already a factor in it. Yeah. And 
there, those aren't particular, I think it's the repetition of the as though, which calls attention to the sort of contingency of those lines. But I feel that contingent yeah. language is all over this, this poem. There's, I'm tense, like a child approaching adolescence. And then um, if there's an image of the soul, I think that's what it is. The um, the right. moon that pretends to be something else burning like a star and convincingly so that you feel sometimes it could actually make something grow on earth. There's so you right. feel sometimes that it could do this is it's, it's yeah. so tentative and like kind of partial right. and even um, at the beginning. It reminds I, me of that line from the end of bishops at the fish houses. Uh, it's like what we imagine knowledge to be, you know, yeah. that, right. It's sort of, it, yeah, I th I think the distancing is so interesting. Like all of this, yeah. I mean, it's I suppose keeping the uncertainty at least charged in the throughout the poem, and then, but it, but those framings are. So, I mean, they're sometimes. Tell me if this sounds right to you. Like they're sometimes marking the distance or the doubt about kind of making an associative leap from the prosaic life as it's lived to the more abstract thing that it's like, you know, that feels like at best you can make a sort of probabilistic statement about it or a kind of conjecture about it. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes also th those reframings are marking the distance between I want to say this, I don't even know if it's true, are marking the distance between like life as it feels right now to like the memory I have of being a child feels far away in something like the similar way mm -hmm. or certainly to like death. But, um, but then also there is the sense that it's, mm, you know, um, figuration or something but yeah I, I like i like this idea of this of sort of um, contingency or doubt or the um, humility of those moments yeah know. there there is i suppose a kind of humility in it i think it is marking the distance but it is also imagining i suppose different it, it's letting us in on the process of imagining different possibilities i guess oh, that's um, so good. Yeah. like um i feel that this the speaker who's moving through the dark as though it were natural to me as though i were already a factor in it i mean that that is an imagining of death but it is it, it's a it's a comforting one i mean those are the kind mm. of the natural to me as though I were already a fact like too inextricable from it to for it to be I mean it's someone moving around a house at night that they know really well right it's right. there's also that um and the the moment with the neighbor is also I think very beautiful it's it, it's pointing to the insufficiency of language but also kind of imagining that a single word could capture all that happiness, right? Yeah, actually, I mean, I'm smiling because there's something not at all humble about, you know, hearing your neighbor's hello <laughs> and understanding it to be her best translation of 
um, being so affected by the light, she can't control her happiness, right? You know, like mm-hmm. maybe she's just saying hello. In other words, <laughs> it's, it's a rather immodest kind of act of the imagination. At the yeah. Same time. And I mean, yeah. right before that, it's, she's saying my, when it appears again, um, it being the light and excess, the yeah. fog lifting, um, yeah. my neighbor thinks her prayers are answered, which are presumably her prayers for her mother, her sick mother. So there's, that's a very definite statement about what the neighbor thinks, which we don't know if that's a projection or not. Mm -hmm. So there's, there is a lot of boldness in this here. I mean, in the same way that I, I feel a great deal is being risked through the, I don't know, continued projection of, or the articulation of the doubt. Um, And some of it is just, the risk of letting your mind seem perhaps like dull or uninsightful or, you know, or, or your confidence to, uh, too much, you know, they, there's a kind of risk of, of arrogance by putting all these movements of the actual thought on the page. Yeah. Um, I want to do something right now, which is just to, um, because we, we we keep sort of like ramping up into it and then backing off again and ramping it back up to it and backing off again. I want to read the last lines of the poem, you know, the sort of last movement of the poem out loud, and then ask you to notice anything that you feel like you that remains to you to notice about them here and now for the sake of our conversation. Um, uh, okay. Um, in the window, the moon is hanging over the earth meaningless but full of messages. It's dead. It's always been dead. But it pretends to be something else, burning like a star, and convincingly, so that you feel sometimes it could actually make something grow on Earth. If there's an image of the soul, I think think that's what it is. I move through the dark as though it were natural to me, as though I were already a factor in it. Tranquil and still, the day dawns. On market day, I go to the market with my lettuces. Yeah, it's a a really funny last line, but I don't know what, I mean, funny in a very particular way. So Elisa, what you know, we've had we've been having this conversation about the poem. Like in the light of that conversation, what do these last and what do you find yourself thinking about when I read these last um, several lines out loud? Um, I'm glad you did. It was it was good to uh, hear your voice and Louise's voice, uh, different versions <laughs> very, of the of these lines. Yeah. Um, I I was thinking about how complicated that image of the soul is like that that version of the moon that stanza that starts it's dead it's always been dead um unfolds this description of the moon so much and then there's the kind of language that's sort of hedging that we've talked about you so that you feel sometimes it could actually make something grow on earth and then stanza break one line if there's an image of the soul i think that's what it is and i always think i don't know what that is then like you know what am i supposed what, what, to what what yeah like what are we what are we being taught about the soul if yeah that's the is it the soul? is it the deadness is it like 
that the soul reflects perhaps something like what right. the world around it maybe. yeah um so so i mean it would be one thing to say well the soul is like the moon you might mean anything by that but, but yeah. she goes on to elaborate like what it is about the moon that is arresting her attention here and it's to to my reading it's yes it's dead it's always been dead so it's like the it's a rock you know it's maybe like the mountain in a way yeah you know there's... but it pretends to be something else right so it looks as though it's shining. And we all know that it's like one of those facts that kids learn at some point in school, right? Or from whatever, that the moon's light is reflected light, you know, that it's the sun's light. So it creates the sort of simulation of liveliness. But I don't, you know, if the soul is like that, does, so does that mean the soul's always been dead, but it looks alive? And if yeah. so, like, what's the sun that is <laughs> creating that illumination? You know what I mean? Like, well, to- yeah, that's, yeah. That, that I feel is, is really a question because when I, you know, if we skip ahead to the lens that we were as though I moved through the dark, as though it were natural to me, as though I were already a factor. And I suppose there's a version of it, which is we're far more connected to the void than we think we are. Like we think we're yeah. heading toward death, but we also emerge from something that's uh, completely uncertain and unknown to us or like there's all this mm. there's the sense that perhaps that we're much more a part of the dark than we want yeah. to believe we are um but i do think that question of like what we're reflecting and and so that you feel sometimes it could actually make something grow on earth i do hear mm-hmm. and i'm curious whether louise would kind of make a base of this um i do sort of wonder about like that being about our potential to create things like sometimes as a poet perhaps you feel that you could make something grow here on earth um from the you know the light of your own soul or whatever but there is a suggestion that that's um both the kind of boldness you know the you know the grand claim about what you could do like you like a son um but also the the doubt about whether in fact that is possible. Right. Um, I mean, because we're just bodies, you know, as you say, right. We, there, there's obviously the time before we exist as people, but then, you know, in that sense, like we capture the light for a moment and then we are revealed to be what we always were, which is like a rock you know, it's a, I think of that. Um, I should just lay cards on the table here. I'm th- I've been thinking of the late Wallace Stevens poem, the rock, which begins, it is an illusion that we were ever alive, lived in yeah. the houses of our mothers, you know, well, Louise left Stevens. So yeah, know. well, I mean, I think that that might, maybe that's there somewhere here. I'm also hearing at the end of the poem, that's just my like greatest hits of like, um, modernist, you know, men, <laughs> poets, but um, Yeats at the end of Adam's Curse where the moon rises and it's it's like an empty shell, you know, it's like it's sort of drained of um, significance mm-hmm. and there's something very kind of poignant about that. Um, but to go to your really brilliant um, thought, Elisa, which was about the, the perhaps, you know, the thing that you thought might make Louise make a face at you, the, this idea that there might be some light that sort of see it. I, I wouldn't say like comes from, at least in the view of this poem, forget about what you or I think or what she might've thought, but in the view of this poem, 
it's not really a light that em- that sort of originates in the soul if we're to follow the logic of the metaphor, but it is a light that seems as though it did, mm-hmm. right? Because perhaps because the soul is is so good at reflecting light <laughs> or something, um, and 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 it's a light that seems to originate from the soul, and it seems to do so so convincingly that we, that we we are sort of persuaded to think that something could grow in that light, whether that thing be a poem or a another person or a or you know a plant. I guess I don't know. Um, <laughs> I want so so okay so so I mean I to that extent I do think that idea um if there is an image of the soul that I think that's what it is is at, at least not totally apprehendable but I have I feel as though I have a foothold in it and the lines that follow but what I really want not to let this conversation slip by without hearing you talk about is what to do with the last line of the poem. The in, <laughs> yeah, I mean, in I light, not not just the lettuces, by the way, but like the double market in that it feels mm-hmm. like a kind of awkwardness in that last line. Which I mean, I don't care if it's intentional or not. I don't think that's the interest. I mean, that's the thing people like to say about this. Oh, it must have been intentional. Like, who cares? Really, I don't know. That's the new critic in me saying. But but it's interesting. <laughs> it's it it's you know on market day I go to the market with my lettuces. Well, I hear, I do think it is a bit awkward. And (laughs) um, as someone who sometimes prioritizes awkwardness in her own lines, I admire it. Um, But I do, um, but I I do For the record, that wasn't, that wasn't pejorative on my, I mean, I was just, (laughs) it's a kind of neutral observation. Yeah, right. Descriptively, it is awkward. Um, I, I hear in it, uh, the same. I feel it's the same kind of line as I make my soup. I pour my glass of wine in this. Like, the, the, it's the kind of thing yeah. that you would say, but you probably wouldn't. Like, you would you would edit out one of those markets probably if you were writing it. But it feels like the way that you might um, narrate something to yourself. Like, and there's something about that market day to me feels so internal perhaps to a person's way of thinking about like like it's not tuesday or saturday it's it's market Mm -hmm. day this is like again a life that's full of habitual gestures um it's part of the village life too yeah it's market day in the village but i do think yes so the the kind of community habits there um but i think this return to the habit i don't know i do read it as moving into the world once again here like here we go um and i i don't know if that's like an almost an image of kind of like the poem could maybe just keep going on forever between these with this movement between the solitary musings and the social participation that's happening or you know these images of the world maybe um but i think and i think it's important that it is like the market but the the person isn't going to buy something or maybe they are or trading um whatever but it they are taking something they have grown also like right. and my right. lettuces and presumably to sell or whatever um is it being too cute to say that the lettuces are like 
Louise going like to bo- market with her poems, like you know, like, yeah, um, I mean, these little things she's grown, you know, I'm a hundred percent sure she would scowl at that. But I do think that yeah. there is some element of, I do think that is kind of true. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I like the idea of taking poems to market and also no one pays you very much, but um, <laughs> I guess lettuces don't cost. I don't know. Lettuces. Either. Yeah. I was gonna um, say. But I, uh, I do remember her, uh, she came to uh, Langdon Hammer's class on, uh, I think it was called Poetry Since 1950 when I was a student, and she talked about this book, and she talked about the word escarpment, um, but she also talked about the word lettuces, and she was really delighted by it. it. Um, She was, she... What did she say about the it? The sound was, this, again, I'm going off of many years ago memory and like some bad notes that I transcribed at some point. Um, but she was really enchanted by the sound of the just the the phrase, like I with my lettuces, and she thought the word yeah. lettuces was really perfect there. So I also think that um, maybe intention doesn't matter, but you yeah. know, with the word escarpment, I was also thinking about that. Um, that sometimes, you know, poems and poets are guided by sound too, and that there by, is by like, things that are meaningless but full of messages. Yes, and I think the lettuces yeah. are that. I think escarpment to me also somewhat sounds like that. I mean, you know, she went yeah. and looked it up, but I feel like there's something yeah. arresting about the sound, and then other things are being pulled from that. Yeah, um, for sure. And when I and for the record, when I say like, oh, intention, who cares? It's not really. Be- I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know, For new critics aside, it's, it's that I think like, oh, attention actually matters to me quite a lot. It's just more mysterious than we sometimes yeah. think of it as being, you know, like, aren't like to be human is to have all kinds of ambivalent and <laughs> occluded intentions that you don't understand yourself at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, lettuces is, I mean, it's the plural that makes it again yeah. to like the, um, like how we were saying, I make my soup, I pour my glass of wine. It's the mice that make that line funny or particular. I think on market day, I go to I go to the market with my lettuce. Would not, not it would it, sound quite different. It would feel or quite my different. heads of lettuce or something. It does yeah. have to be the plural. It's um, yeah. And I thought also, I do think you know lettuce with a, when we know what it signifies is a kind of funny word, but it it. It has a real beauty of sound when I just mm-hmm. start to abstract it more and more when I'm just thinking about it. Lettuces. Like, what a lovely. Uh, I'll say lettuces. the stupid thing it reminded me of, which is like the opening words of Proof Rock. Let us, let us oh. go then. Yeah. <laughs> Why well, is that stupid? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're, you're just like so embarrassed by your modernist. <laughs> Plenty of people will tell me why it's so stupid. Um, I'm sure. So now, but um, you know, since I rate, and since you just said modernist, and since I had raised a moment ago the Yates thing of the end of Adam's Curse, where the moon shows up and it's hollow, you know, a, a real important difference for me in the the way the, po- the that poem and this poem end, the poems are extremely different in all kinds of ways. Um, is that Yates ends that? I mean, the last word of that poem is moon, right? Um, and yet we'd grown as weary hearted as that hollow moon is how that poem ends. And here it's like that moment has happened, but I loved what you were saying earlier, Elise, about how it's like, then there's the, 
sigh and re-entry into the world of um i don't know commerce or at least you know sociality in some sense of like ordinary life moving along puttering along is what it feels like yeah i yeah. think it's important that it's um yes um that the fact that it keeps moving but i also think there would be a temptation i think for for me for many poets to have an end of real of clear like beauty right. and significance or attachment to the world and this is an image where i'm like oh that i mean that doesn't sound that fun to me like going to sell like effort no. you know in the same way that your solitary soup and your solitary wine are kind of less consoling perhaps than they you know you would like them to be like they are listen i'm are... about to i'm about to have mine tonight <laughs> your solitary soup and your soul. Yeah. i mean i have them all the time but uh there is and i go to the market with my lettuces all the time do you um, but, <laughs> yeah Okay. Just different, different lettuces. Um, But there's, there's something about it being routine, I think that uh, kind of connects the hollowness to a a fuller thing without like overstating, I guess, what it is to be human, which is like often pretty boring, or, Mm -hmm. you know, like, insufficient in some way Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. whatever the demands of your soul actually are or what you would right. like your life to be or perhaps to the imaginings returning to that discussion we had earlier on transformation and personhood also perhaps to the person that you would have liked to be or yeah. that you still would like to be um yeah. and it's it's interesting i think i mean this poem you know is a longer one although she goes on to write longer ones still and Even faithful and virtuous yeah. night um but I think, you know, it, it, it feels like a, a very large poem to me and how much yeah. it contains. That's so interesting. A large poem and yet a village life, you know, as a title suggests a kind of small scale. Mm-hmm. The voice feels kind of small to me for the most part, though it has these kind of extravagant moments of expansion. Yeah. Um, I think I know what you mean. Or maybe uh, capacious would be a better. Mm-hmm. The, the just a lot more turns out to be contained than on this than right. is necessarily immediate, which is I guess always true of poems. But that's why you have this oh. podcast. Um, but <laughs> it's why we why know. we talk about them. Um, but I do think uh, the with the mundanity, like mm-hmm. it does remind me, like both how much of other people is unknowable, but also like how much is under the surface in people's lives, like yeah. that you don't know about. So it, it, it also calls to mind a kind of universal complication. That's interesting. The lettuces also are, um, you know, it's like the kind of thing which the outside looks like the inside. It's just smaller and smaller versions. Depends yeah. on the kind of lettuce, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. But in that sense, it's like, uh, like an onion or something, you know, yeah. that, where mm-hmm. there's no, there's, I guess, although unlike an onion, it has like kind of a core sometimes. Okay, enough of that. What I've been wanting to ask you to do this um, these last few moments, um, long as the poem might be, I hope this doesn't strain your voice or um, or energy too much. Is I can probably to, manage <laughs> to let us hear the poem one more time, uh, but in your voice, Elisa. Okay. A village life. 
The death and uncertainty that await me as they await all men. The shadows evaluating me because it can take time to destroy a human being. The element of suspense needs to be preserved. On Sundays, I walk my neighbor's dog so she can go to church to pray for her sick mother. The dog waits for me in the doorway. Summer and winter, we walk the same road early morning at the base of the escarpment. Sometimes the dog gets away from me. For a moment or two, I can't see him behind some trees. He's very proud of this, this trick he brings out occasionally and gives up again as a favor to me. Afterward, I go back to my house to gather firewood. I keep in my mind images from each walk, Monarda growing by the roadside, in early spring, the dog chasing the little gray mice. So for a while, it seems possible not to think of the hold of the body weakening, the ratio of the body to the void shifting, and the prayers becoming prayers for the dead. Midday, the church bells finished, light in excess. Still, fog blankets the meadow so you can't see the mountain in the distance covered with snow and ice. When it appears again, my neighbor thinks her prayers are answered. So much light she can't control her happiness. It has to burst out in language. Hello, she yells, as though that is her best translation. She believes in the virgin the way I believe in the mountain, though in one case the fog never lifts. But each person stores his hope in a different place. I make my soup, I pour my glass of wine. I'm tense, like a child approaching adolescence. Soon it will be decided for certain what you are, one thing, a boy or girl, not both any longer. And the child thinks, I want to have a say in what happens, but the child has no say whatsoever. When I was a child, I did not foresee this. Later, the sun sets, the shadows gather, rustling the low bushes like animals just awake for the night. Inside, there's only firelight. It fades slowly, now only the heaviest woods still flickering across the shelves of instruments. I hear music coming from them sometimes, even locked in their cases. When I was a bird, I believed I would be a man. That's the flute. And the horn answers, when I was a man, I cried out to be a bird. Then the music vanishes, and the secret it confides in me vanishes also. In the window, the moon is hanging over the earth, meaningless but full of messages. It's dead, it's always been dead, but it pretends to be something else, burning like a star, and convincingly, so that you feel sometimes it could actually make something grow on earth. If there's an image of the soul, I think that's what it is. I move through the dark as though it were natural to me, as though I were already a factor in it. Tranquil and still, the day dawns. On market day, I go to the market with my lettuces. Well, uh, Lisa Gonzalez, thank you so much for uh, sharing this time with me. Um, it was really moving and meaningful to me. Um, and um, I shouldn't let the um, the conversation go by without saying something I should have said at the outset that I 
you know, I want to give you my condolences too for the the loss of your teacher yeah. and friend. Um, and um, I hope I hope it did something for you to to get to spend some time with a poem of hers in conversation. Um, yeah, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it did. I mean, I I wrote a paper about um, not this poem, but this book for that class with uh, Langdon <laughs> Hammer, and uh, it was. But I hadn't reread it for like fully for years until I knew we were doing this, and um, that felt like a beautiful revisitation and. This conversation, as I knew it would, has taught me things and made me feel, I don't know, deeply grateful for the vibrancy of Louise's mind and, you know, mm -hmm. the things that it you know, put in the world. Yeah, well, I feel that way too. Um, so thank you again. And um, thank you, dear listeners, for listening along with us. Um, stay tuned. We will have uh, more uh, conversations for you coming soon. Be well, everyone.